Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter for context. <clears throat> This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds." And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we work through this word that you would be at work in us. Father, I pray that you would help us to apply it and to repent where we need to repent, to receive it in humility. Father, all for your glory, that we may be built up and walk in a manner worthy of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. So a couple weeks ago, I worked through these verses but was unable to focus much on the last two verses, really the last verse. And so that's my purpose today. Uh, So let's begin with a little bit of review. In chapter 2 of his second letter, the Apostle Peter confronts and condemns false teachers. These false teachers secretly introduce destructive heresies They deny the master. They bring swift destruction upon themselves, is what he writes. And and you remember we focused on this. They follow their own sensuality. And in service to their greed, they exploit people with false words. So sex and money motivate false teachers. Following those statements, the Apostle Peter gives us examples of God's judgment. God judged the angels who sinned. He didn't even wait in that case. He he judged those angels. He judged the ancient world, but preserved Noah. 
and his family. He judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescued from those cities uh, righteous Lot, who was tormented by the Sodomites' lawless deeds. Uh, Then this hopeful verse, verse 9, if God rescued Lot, he knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And what a wonderful promise to sinners, right? To sinners like us. What a wonderful promise to know that God rescues sinners from temptation and provides that way of escape. So that's the context of our passage. And I want to focus in on the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. It reads, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires and despise authority. If the promise of God to rescue the godly is comforting, the promise of God to keep the unrighteous under punishment until his son returns to judge all mankind, well, that's devastating. It should be devastating. The temptation you might face is to think that God God is being cruel, that God is perhaps bearing a grudge against those sinful human beings that he's reserving for judgment. But but you you must counter that temptation by thinking about the eternal character of God. Right? He is holy, holy, holy. Our God is holy, holy, holy. He, it says in Scripture, is angry with the wicked every day. There's not a day that passes where God is not angry at the wicked. And don't forget this. The wicked are angry with God every day too. The wicked are angered, angered toward him. As it says in Ephesians, unbelievers are hostile in mind toward God. And we have a tendency to think that it's not fair for God to judge my unbelieving, ignorant, friendly co-workers. It's just not fair. But you, brothers and sisters, if you think that, have a fallen sense of fairness. That's what you have. You have a very humanistic sense of fairness. But God's judgments are always right and true because they arise from his utter perfection. They arise from his utter holiness. So his judgments are always right and true. And never forget when you start thinking that God might be unfair, never forget that God the Father loves his Son with an eternal love. And so those who by sinning and refusing to repent and to bow their knees to Jesus, they disparage the very one upon which the Father's affections are set. The very one whom the Father sent to save sinners, even through agonizing pain. So don't forget that you and I have fallen senses of justice, and and our hearts are still recovering from their desperate wickedness. Right? You, would, you, you would unholy God so that your friends who have rejected the way of life might be saved. And that's blasphemy. That's blasphemous. That desire is 
is wrong-headed and sinful. God will be God. Earlier in this passage, as I have said, um, well, no, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Actually, look at it. I mean, I printed it on sheets so you could even look at it. You don't even have to bring your Bibles to church. Note that it says, especially. Note that little word, especially, there, and then it gives two examples of the wicked still, still to be regarded as false teachers. That especially means that God is especially reserving these two categories of sinners for his judgment. The, those two categories are those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and those who despise authority, right? So those who, who enjoy the flesh and those who hate authority. Earlier in this passage, as I've said, Peter teaches us that the false teachers are given to sensuality, right? That is something that marks false teachers. They're given to sensuality. What he's saying here in verse 10 about indulging the flesh with its corrupt desires is sensuality, right? Indulging the flesh with its corrupt desires is a great definition of sensuality. The senses of our bodies are really powerful, aren't they? The senses of your body, bodies are, are very powerful. And we can walk into the house and we can smell an apple pie baking in the oven. And then what, what's your life like from there out? It's no satisfaction until you have that piece of apple pie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream. If you're weird, I don't like that. Just the pie. Cool down so it's not hot. I know, I've got problems. But you can't, I mean, smelling that, you can't bear then not to have some. We, we can hear a piece of music, maybe a piece of music that we played in the past or that we knew very well or that was played at somebody's funeral, and we can be instantly moved to tears, maybe just because of its sheer beauty, but, but oftentimes because it reminds us of someone or some time in our lives. And it can happen quickly. Someone can embrace us in a hug and clouds of depression just, just lift. The power of touch, right? We can drink a glass of wine in the midst of loved ones and savor being merry of heart, right? The, the, sense, the senses are so powerful and God has given them to us to enjoy to his glory, but the senses can also, like all good things, bring us to terrible places, right? When we indulge our senses in ways that God has forbidden to us. Think of Eve. Eve, when tempted by the serpent, what did she do? She obeyed her senses rather than obeying that one law that God had laid down. She obeyed her senses when she looked upon the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil and saw that it was a delight to the eyes. She fell in love with the vision of that, that fruit. King David was walking around on the roof of his house one night, and he saw a beautiful young woman bathing. 
And it says, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Again, his eyes carry him away and into iniquity. King Solomon explored with his mind how to stimulate his body with wine. He collected silver and gold. He provided himself with the pleasures of men, many concubines. In fact, he confesses, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. The Apostle John summarizes all of life outside of Christ this way. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it, but is from the world. So sensuality, indulging the flesh in its corrupt desires has been the downfall of many people. Rather than pleasing God, rather than honoring Him with their bodies and their senses, they give their, their senses over to what they naturally crave, and that is corruption. Corruption. That corruption is lust, it is drunkenness, it is sentimentality, it is nostalgia, it is gluttony, it is greed, it is, I mean, the list could go on and on and on. In his commentary, Calvin lays out what it means to indulge the flesh. Here's what he says. He says, to walk after the flesh is to be given up to the flesh like brute animals who are not led by reason and judgment, but have the natural desire of their flesh as their chief guide. By the lust of uncleanness, understand filthy and unbridled gratifications when men, having cast away every virtuous feeling and shaken off shame, are carried away into every uncleanness. So he says, he says those who, who, who go after their, their sensual feelings are, like, are just like animals. Animals, lusty animals that just are led by instinct, right? But notice, it's worth pointing out that he contrasts those who follow their flesh and on the contrary, those who follow reason, judgment, virtue, and and this, which I think is important, a sense of shame. A sense of shame. Now, that is what it means to have the mind of Christ. You have a mind that is not simply like a brute animal following the, the pushes of your flesh, but that you have a mind that recalls the Word of God and that you have a sense of what is right and wronged, which is honed by the fact that you've studied the Word of God to find out what is right and wrong. Um, and that you, and this is important, understand the grace of shame. You understand the good of shame. It is those who, as Calvin said, throw off shame that end up indulging the flesh with its corrupt desires. Right? The, the act of sleeping with your girlfriend, not your wife, mind you, requires throwing off shame. Committing sodomy means throwing off shame. But the godly do not throw off shame, but allow it to teach them. Right? The godly the godly know shame and embrace it. They do not suppress shame, but listen to it closely. Let it inform what they do. This explains the whole pride movement today. I mean, think of the word pride. Pride is to throw off shame, right? The LGBT pride movement is the throwing off of shame. It's the silencing of shame so that unclean acts can supposedly be done without guilt, 
which is a fool's errand. If the law is written on the heart, it's a fool's errand. So, dear brothers and sisters, the wicked hearts and remaining corruption you have in your hearts is a false teacher. It will urge you to indulge your sensuality. Young people, it will urge you to indulge your senses. But your task, your task as as a believer in God, as a child adopted into his household, is to be controlled by the Spirit, right? Not by the flesh. Is the flesh more powerful than the Spirit of God? We often think so. Right? We are to be controlled by the Spirit and not the flesh. We, we are to find delight not in indulging the corrupt desires, but in loving God and putting to death the deeds of the body. It is to find the context in which, uh, I mean, godliness is to find the context in which your senses can be enjoyed without controlling you. It is the context of marriage. It is the context of self-control. It is the context of doing all things for the glory of God. Then those senses can be enjoyed because they're not your master. They've become your servant. They've become your servant to glorify God. False teachers, dear friends, will give you reasons that you can safely indulge your corrupt desires. That's what false teachers will do. They will mock God's standards of holiness. They will make you feel like a prude and as if life is passing you by if you lead the non-sensual life. Right? Don't listen to their lies. Their lies. Don't let them tap into the power you already deal with as your senses drag you around by your nose. Right? Remember what I said earlier, that especially word at the beginning of verse 10. God has singled out for judgment those who are sensual. They will be kept for judgment. We can expect that many, if not most of those who reject God will do so because they would rather serve their senses than serve the maker of those senses with self-control. So says the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And you say, well, what does that have to do with the senses? Images are seen by the eyes. That's sensuality. Build an image and worship it, you're practicing sensuality. You're, practice, you're giving your eyes, your senses over to idolatry. Well, it goes on from there. Therefore, God gave them over in, their lust, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
And just as, God, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do these things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And although they know the ordinance of God, they know God's law, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They're evangelists for the cause of the senses. Sensuality is the God many people serve, and those who indulge their senses are always good missionaries for their cause. This explains so much about our culture today, doesn't it? I mean, mean our major league sports are missionaries for the cause of sodomy. Even though they know it is wrong, they cast off shame and they make commercials about the God of sensuality. I don't think anyone would argue that sensuality is one of the leading sins in our culture and that there is nothing new about that, right? The Apostle Peter tells us to expect it. And so, children, brothers and sisters, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Sensuality, people live for sensuality as as their God. You are being tempted every day to forsake the God whom you have not seen for the sensuality that you can see and smell and hear and touch and feel. That's going on with you. It will continue. So that's the first category of those who are especially under the condemnation of God. The other, the last two words of uh, verse 10, those who despise authority. Those who hate authority. Now, you get tired of me saying this. You, you're fatigued with me this morning for saying it. We hate authority. We hate authority. There's not one of us here who doesn't hate authority. You hear me say it all the time. You've heard me make the case that our society of rugged individuals who believe that the highest principle is personal autonomy is saturated with a hatred of authority. I think it is so pervasive that we don't even perceive it. Right? We don't recognize our own hatred of authority until God converts us and then dazzles us with the fact that there is one omnipotent being who rules over all. We must be dazzled with his sovereign authority before we have any grid for authority. His fatherhood, think of it, his fatherhood which he has imprinted upon the world is his authority. It is only then that we begin to see authority and only then that we, be, we recognize that we are called to be humble toward authority when we recognize that God is the Father. 
that he is the sovereign king. That this world has over it one who has all authority. But it's not just that it stops there. He delegates authority. Being a God of authority, he delegates authority. False teachers will get you to rise up against all the authorities God has put in your life. And they will love it. They will want you to see them as your only authority over even against God. But they will want you to reject all of your authorities. False teachers will get you to hate authority and submission in marriage, for example. How many false teachers have there been who have denied that Ephesians 5 is in the Bible? Evangelical feminist movement. False teachers will get you to rail against our governing authorities who are nothing less than ministers of God, set up by God himself. False teachers will get you to rail against what they deem to be abusive and intrusive authority in the church. They will instruct you that church discipline is wrong, that it is overbearing, that it is not the place of anybody else to to, um, worry about your private life. But listen to this answer from the larger catechism about the fifth commandment, honoring father and mother. Now, this was written in the 17th century prior to the march of the Enlightenment through Europe and America. It's very hard for us to swallow this today. Just reading this puts puts forward categories. We're like, this is awkward. Well, the first couple are easy. Which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment, this is question 123 of the larger catechism, Westminster larger catechism. Which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land upon which, uh, which the Lord your God is giving thee. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents. So right off the bat, it's like, Arr! yeah, it's parents, but Arr! it's immediately coming off of that. That's the obvious statement. It's mothers and fathers, Right. Not only natural parents, but all superiors. Oh, that feels so un-American, doesn't it? All superiors in age and gifts. Oh, superiors and gifts. I mean, that's, that's brutal. That's brutal. Because we can, all of us can be whatever we want to be. We can climb whatever mountain we want to climb, right? We all have equal gifts, right? And age, well, old people are stupid, right? Tired and stupid is our culture's attitude. Now listen to this. Okay, so the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance by God's decree, by God doing it, by God's God's sovereignty, are over us in place of authority, whether in family, in church, or in commonwealth, in government. Okay? So there's so much in there that already shakes us loose of our hatred of authority. Or actually, it just spurs up in us a hatred of authority because it's, it's putting us in our place. It's putting us in our place, isn't it? 
You, you all have superiors. You all are in certain places and at certain times vastly inferior to others. That feels weird, doesn't it? It's undeniably true. It's undeniably true if we're honest with one another, but it's undeniably true based upon what the Bible teaches. Now, it goes on, and stick with me. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Superiors are styled father and mother both to teach them in all duties toward their inferiors, like natural parents, to express love and tenderness to them according to their several relations, and to work inferiors, listen to this, to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superior? Ah, oh, they keep going on it, right? And we're like, here, inferior superiors. Uh, this is making, making me uncomfortable. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is, now get this, this seems like, a, this seems like American constitutional blasphemy, okay? Listen to this. The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places. Now get this. Okay, all of that's like, okay, they can order us to do things and we should obey and we should give thanks and we should, um, we should protect their reputations. But then it also says this, bearing with their infirmities. That means when they're wrong. Bearing with them when they're wrong and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. Covering over the sins of authorities with love? I mean, seriously? That seems to be a bridge too far. Covering over the, the I mean, what we do is moan and about our superiors' failings and sins. We, instead, are taught in our catechism to cover their infirmities in love. Now there's, I mean, I could read, there, there are other questions in this section of the larger catechism. Go look at it. It's about the mid-120s. And um, they're all very helpful. It goes on to talk about the sins of superiors, right? It corrects superiors and puts superiors in their place. But nonetheless... It is convicting to read those sections about the duties of inferiors. And then it goes on to talk about the duties of equals. And we're like, whoa. Okay, so superiors, inferiors, and now we're talking about equals. And the duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other in giving honor to one before another and to rejoice in each other's gifts and advancement as their own. In other words, rejoice with those who rejoice and give other people honor even if they're your equals. 
Okay, so now what do I want to say at this point? The doctrine of God's fatherhood. Okay, the doctrine of God's fatherhood. Listen to me here. That God is the Father by whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its names, derives its name, means that this world is one that is saturated in authority. God's fatherhood, which is his is is I mean, it, it is his primary character, right? God's fatherhood as a person is on his earth, in his world, in creation. So that means this world is one that is saturated in authority. That God is the Father and has created all things that exist, gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. So he has authority, but he has also imprinted this authority on his creation, most clearly in the authority he gives to husbands of wives, Ephesians 5. Mothers and fathers of children, the fifth commandment. Church officers, Hebrew 13, 17. And civil governments, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Right? Those things are established by God, those authorities. Now those who despise authority, therefore, like these false teachers that the apostle Peter is warning about. And those false teachers end up opposing God's fatherhood. In resisting authority in this world, they are resisting God's fatherhood. Critical theory and postmodernism have enshrined in our intellectual circles nothing more than a hatred of God the Father. That's what it is. These critical theories and postmodernists have denounced authority as systemic oppression for the last hundred years or so. And the hens are coming home to roost, if you haven't noticed in our culture. It takes some time for intellectual theories to make it down to the popular level, but that is where we are now. We are all taught to hate authority, to be, to be, ma- to, you know, to be mad at our parents and blame all of our issues on our upbringing. That's counseling today. Women are taught to despise the strength of their, their husband. Right? Wives are taught to belittle their husbands. No one really believes that it, also that church officers actually have any real authority. Whatever they say is optional, even though God has given the keys of the kingdom to his church. Officers. And then there are governing authorities that we, we conservative Christians are told to defy as tyrants. Defy. COVID-19 and mask mandates have been the perfect way of revealing our heart attitudes toward our governing authorities. I mean, it's just been like a perfect test case. And the more libertarian among us are shouting that this is religious persecution, face masks, mask mandates, religious persecution, and a denial of basic fundamental human rights. Let me ask one question of you who lean in that direction. Where are you when we stand outside the abortion clinic, praying and witnessing and warning women not to kill their children? 
There is no question that protecting the right of women to hire a killer to dismember the baby in their womb is the worst kind of oppression and denial of basic fundamental human rights, right up there with gulags and concentration camps. Here's a hunch. You couldn't care less about some pagan woman's baby, but when it comes to your own body and those masks, it's my body, my choice. And so we've taken it upon ourselves to rail against our governing authorities, mocking them for their pseudoscience and contradictory guidelines. You know, one week it's this, one week it's that. Masking has revealed just how much we are unwilling to honor our superiors. And just for me to say that they are superiors makes you want to vomit. Let me pull in Calvin's commentary on these two words, despise authority, that we are thinking about right now. Calvin writes, but there is no doubt, but that in these words he refers to the imperial and magisterial power. For though there is no lawful station in life, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> in life, which is not worthy of respect, Yet we know that the magisterial office excels every other because in governing mankind, God himself is represented. What Calvin is saying is the government is the preeminent government of the world. Calvin? But why does he say that? He says that because the government is God governing his world. Do we accept that? I mean, that's Romans 13, but do we accept it? I mean, it's 1 Peter 2. I mean, it's Titus. It's, you know, it's in 1 Timothy. It's, it's all over the place. Do we accept that? He then goes on, he says, then truly glorious is that power in which God himself appears. It's glorious that God appears in this power. And then he goes on, he says this. And this is really interesting to me. Stick with me here. This is a long sermon. Um, Calvin goes on. He says, We now perceive that the apostle meant in this second clause, even that they of whom he speaks were frantic men, lovers of tumults and confusion. For no one can introduce anarchy into the world without introducing disorder. Now these, with bold effrontery, vomited forth reproaches against magistrates, that they might take away every respect for public rights. And this was openly to fight against God by their blasphemies. There are also many turbulent men of this sort at the present day who proudly declare that the power of the sword, the government, is heathen and unlawful. This is Calvin writing in the 16th century, right? It reads like it was written yesterday that the power of the sword is heathen and lawful and furiously attempt to subvert all government. Such furies Satan excites in order to disturb and prevent the progress of the gospel. But the Lord hath dealt favorably with us for he hath not only warned us to beware of this deadly poison, but has also by this ancient example fortified us against this scandal. Hence, 
The papists, okay, he draws in the Roman Catholics. The papists act very dishonestly when they accuse us reformers and say that seditious men are made so by our doctrine, right? The Roman Catholics always used to say that you guys are going to have rebels. You don't have any moral authority. If everybody's saved by grace alone, you know, there's going to be license all over the place. And the reformers um, fought back on that. And so here they are accusing them of fomenting rebellion. And then the, the Calvin says, the same thing might indeed have been alleged against the apostles formally, and yet they were as far as possible from encouraging any such wickedness. Right? In other words, the writing of the scriptures, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and all the relation between church and state and our individual relation between church and state is meant to put down sedition and rebellion. And it, it, I, I suppose it helps to keep in mind that Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 were written when Nero was emperor of Rome. Nero, Nero is cosmically more wicked than any, any ruler we have ever had over us. Cosmically. It is often said that in railing against the authorities, particularly the lawless governing authorities, we are just following our forefathers like John Knox. He did, after all, write the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous, monstrous, monstrous regiment of women. What was that? That was a book written to declare that Mary had no right to the throne because she was wicked, but also because she was a woman. Right? But did you know this about Knox? When the queen forbid public worship, public Protestant worship services, he submitted. Worship services. He submitted to her, and they met for a time in private residences for worship. They didn't go into their building. They didn't go into their sanctuary. He submitted to the queen. Yes, all along he was appealing to the queen to change her mind, right? Not thoughtlessly submitting to unlawful decrees. The church does, after all, have a duty to teach the state how to be the state according to God's laws, but there are peaceable ways to do so. Peaceable ways. And thank the Lord, there are those ways in our nation, especially in our nation. Some other nations don't have recourse to, to elections every four years, right? To writing a complaint to the local magistrates, to suing somebody for the damages they've caused. We have all of this recourse to make our, our positions aware. Again, I want to return to this basic fact. False teachers despise authority. But we have to be careful, as the larger catechism taught, that even as we engage in prophetic ministry, we do not teach others, particularly the young, or harbor in our own hearts hatred of authority. That's what we must be careful to do. Go to city council meetings. 
if you're upset about mask mandates, go to city council meetings and argue your case. Do it. I'll go with you. I will go with you. Go to city council meetings, argue against masking mandates and quarantine laws, but don't despise authority in your heart or in your actions. Honestly, we don't need any help in despising authority. The pride of our hearts are already ready to rail against our teachers at school, our pastors, our elders, our husbands, our police officers, right? Our elected officials, our bank tellers, the people who work in the polling places. We want to rail against anybody who has position or authority. But all these people have authority. And, this, and that is a reflection of nothing less than God's fatherhood and the fatherhood of God written upon his whole world. In opposing them with foolish abandon, you will end up undermining authority as a concept. And before you know it, you're just a backdoor socialist. That's what you'll become. You'll just come into socialism through the back door. Because you'll have broken down authority and you'll have submitted uh, the, outlandish, the outlandish idea that equality is everything. Absolute equality is everything. The Word of God establishes that authority is real, that it is good, that it governs this world, and that it is lodged in the fatherhood of God. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. I do not want the church to fight for a world in which the only authority which exists is individual self-government. And many who rail against the government for lawful orders, like masking, are close to throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right? We have to stop and consider Peter's words here, that those who despise authority are especially reserved for judgment. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. We've had people leave our church recently, and I believe a contributing factor of their departure was that I have been unwilling to rail against governing authorities for making mask mandates. That has been the reason. Right, being a little transparent up here, right? That has been one of the contributing reasons. This sermon is an explanation of why I have refrained from doing so. Because God is a father, and a far greater problem today than the problem of government overreach is the hatred of authority. Because it ungods God, because it is primarily theological. We, by our example, by mocking our superiors, are teaching our girls to reject the authority of their husbands, children to reject the authority of their parents, church members to reject the authority of their elders, and citizens to reject the authority of their elected and appointed officials. We will sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind if we are not careful in this. So, 
So join me, though, in, in talking about authority and in our duty, as the catechism puts it, to honor them with all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Think about if you, you thought about um, our state senators with all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. We can imitate those who despise authority or we can fear the Father and honor the authority that he has imprinted on his world. Will we each be little dictators? Each of us little dictators. Or will we willingly, willingly yield, respectfully correct, lovingly bear with the authorities God has put in our lives? For the sake of mass, will we undermine the fatherhood of God and announce to the world that we, Christians, are despisers of authority? like false teachers. You know what? If the church does that, there will be no one left in this world who believes that authority is meant for our good and is from God. The church is, is going to be the last place in all of history that asserts that authority is good and is from God. Do we think so little of God's fatherhood and his governance of this world for the sake of personal autonomy and individual rights, will we join up with other despisers of authority? We mustn't. We cannot. We cannot. That is to fall away, right? Because God is the Father, and his fatherhood is everywhere. 